and welcome. This is Raleigh Prowess, a.k.a. the Unicorn Lord. And welcome to the first installment of the prologue. This is the show dedicated to the guys who dream of making it big and to hope to be the next Durr or Phil Ivy of the world. I hope that I can, through this program, enlighten you people as to show just how difficult it is to be the next hot thing in poker and to show that hard work does, in fact, pay off. Mainly by being the focus. Yes, this podcast will be the online journal of a microgrinder trying to advance through the limits and through the various games of poker. I will be posting hands. I will be posting results. And I will allow people to tear apart my play for all to see. And by giving hands to professional players and having them dissect them as well, I plan to correct the errors of my game. So let's review my current situation. Losses all this month adjusting to the two five-cent games on PokerStars have forced me back to the bottom of the barrel. One two-cent no limit and two four-cent limit games. My current bankroll is $36 and a penny. And I'm looking to rebuild to my high point of $100. I'm tilting like a madman at the massive amount of beats I've been taking. So I've decided to take the day off to get my head together. As for my background. Yes, I got into poker through my very large extended family. Invited to a local home game by my father. The game was a $40 buy-in, $10 bounty rebuy tournament. Which was very prominently in my style of play. I cashed for third in my first attempt, and I've been hooked on the poker bandwagon ever since. After learning about variants the hard way, I stumbled through the internet and came across the websites 2plus2 and Poker Road, and I've been trying to improve my game ever since. And that's where I currently stand as a player. Well, next on the prologue, the host of the Small Stakes Grinders, Spartan, will talk to us about beginner's mistakes. This is the prologue, and we'll be right back after this.
guest is the host of his own poker-related podcast called Small Stakes Grinders on the Poker Road website, in which he recently finished doing an interview with Barry Greenstein. Welcome, Spartan. Hello, Spartan. Uh, Happy to be here. All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about Small Stakes Grinders? Uh, Well, basically, uh, this came off of uh, the fact that a lot of the poker podcasts out there kind of talk about high stakes poker or poker that really doesn't apply to the stakes that the majority of us will play. So uh, like, you know, 25 cent, no limit, 50 cent, no limit, even $1 and $2. So what I wanted to try to do is get a a a poker podcast that wasn't so heavy on the hand analysis, but more got into the thinking aspects of the game, like how to read your opponents, how to uh, conduct yourself off the table for poker-related matters, and basically to try to give advice that everyone can apply to immediately at the tables rather than just uh, applying hand strategies that kind of only work at higher stakes. And so what did you talk to Barry about? Uh, well, the idea behind the, that interview is to talk about stud, and uh, I'm sure that this has gotten around in more places than just on Poker Row, but Barry can talk for a long time and go all over the place. Uh-huh. So while we while we did try to uh, while the the focus obviously was stud, um, he ended up talking a little bit about um, himself and his his history within poker, and then stud's history, and then kind of went into some of the more basic things about uh, some beginner mistakes that people make when they're making the transition from no limit hold'em to huh. any of the stud games. All right. So how did you get into poker, first of all? Um, believe it or not, it wasn't because of the moneymaker effect. I actually didn't even know poker was on television until I got to college, which would have been 2004. Um, Mm -hmm. you can call that me being sheltered if you want, but, uh, (laughs) but, uh, basically, uh, we just a couple home games. Uh, I didn't really know what Texas Hold'em was until I got to college and I played the games and I did pretty well in them. Um, got, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was beginner's luck because I, Still do well in them now. Uh, when I lose, I usually lose when I get the best of it, which is the eternal excuse that every poker player gives. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, did a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of a ton of casinos down here in San Diego, so you know, did a little bit there. The the casinos were when I finally realized I wasn't as much of a good player as I thought I was. Uh, some of that probably had to do with the fact that I'm, you know a poor college, uh, starving college student at the time. So losing $40 in uh, 1-2 limit is devastating uh, back then. It's extremely tilting. It, it's, it, it is when you when you do well in the home games. You win, I mean, they were basically seven or eight players sit and goes. Mm. So you win $30 there, and then you come to, and then you lose it all in an hour and a half in limit poker of all things. All right. So I brought you on the show to talk about mistakes, and be- more importantly, beginner mistakes. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes you've ever seen as a beginning player? Well, I can go off of one that I know happens constantly, and that's playing stakes that are way, that's way too big for your bankroll. I just kind of alluded to it uh, earlier with me saying playing 1-2 limit. I mean, that's the lowest stake. I, I don't even think they offer that anymore, uh, really, at casinos. They offer 2-4 minimum. But uh, my best example I can give is that if you're playing 1-2 no limit, in your you know brick and mortar casino and you're winning that, uh, do not expect to win the equivalent one two game online. Mm-hmm. Um, the bo- the the bankroll requirements are so much lower. Uh, well, at least I've heard that they're kind of they're a lot lower in live casinos because 
you are dealt fewer hands. The uh, opponent quality is significantly worse because that is the lowest uh, level that you can play at a live casino. But I've seen people make the direct uh, transition from 1-2 live to 1-2 online, and they've literally lost their bankroll in a three-hour session because they thought that they could do the exact same amount. So I think one of the biggest beginner mistakes I've seen is playing uh, a limit or a tournament level or a sit-and-go level or whatever at a uh, way too high of a risk to your bankroll. So you think that there's a, a variance factor between online play and live play? I'm not sure it's a variance factor so much as that you just have to understand that I, I, this was I think this was described on two plus two. I've kind of adopted it as something that I kind of always tell people when discussing bankroll uh, management. Um, since one two is the lowest game you play at a live casino, you have to kind of think of what's the lowest stake online and online it's one cent, two cent or maybe two cent, five cent. That's where the real like the recreational player, the you know, generally the recreational players go to play poker online. So if you want to meet that same crowd, you actually have to drop down to a stake that's far lower than you played on uh, live casinos. And of course, then you'll have those same amount of players. Now, of course, because you're playing more hands, there is a chance for greater variance. But um, at the same time, you have people that, you know, 12 table, 16 table, 24 table. Uh, yeah, let's and... talk about that for a second. Do you think the multi-tablers actually bring up higher you know, higher bankroll requirements since you're going to have to be facing these guys on like four or five tables. Uh, definitely. Um, there's a, there's a million different ways you could calculate bankroll. Um, my personal strategy is to have between 40 and 50 buy-ins uh, for a particular stake. So, but you have to remember that if you're playing multiple tables, you still have to con you you have to understand that you're putting multiple buy-ins into one particular session. So one way I've thought about it is for every additional table that you put in, you should have between 1.5 and 2 extra buy-ins um, in your bankroll just so you can cushion yourself from any potential disaster that may occur from playing multiple tables, especially if you're just getting started and you aren't really sure how the whole concept of having four tables at the same time works. Yeah, do you think that uh, having four tables at the same time would... It's basically like the dream of every player out there. Like they automatically think that they can do this because they see all these players online doing it with 24 tables, and they don't realize that half of these guys aren't really making money or they're break pros. Well, the thing about playing that many tables, um, well, there's two things. One is there is a trade-off between well, um, your variance goes down, your hourly or your but your hourly goes up, and that's generally why you play uh, more tables. So you, you you make less money per table, but your variance over across all the tables is lower because you're just playing so many hands. And so people think that if you're playing that many tables, you're bound to have, uh, you know, you're bound to make more money. And and when you're just starting out, you have to you have to remember that you need really need to work up to that level because it is it's a, quite a bit of effort. I personally, the highest I've done is eight tabling. Uh, micro stakes limit. I don't and, think I've ever gone higher than four myself. Right. I, I mean, it, even eight's kind of ridiculous. And uh, I was able to do it for a good hour, and then I just got burned out. And I know that this isn't the traditional online poker player's uh, story that, you know, eight tables is too many, but it's just not for everyone. And I think that the, the other thing is, is that when people actually do front money for uh, for online training sites, like, uh, say, card runners or stocks poker, um, they show two tables, four tables on a regular basis, and they're ju they just go through so things go through things 
so fluidly that <laughs> unlike that sentence, they go through things so fluidly that you you think it's easy. And they're just going through hands as if nothing's really happening, hands that are bad, they just drop without even talking about it. And so people think that they can do the exact same thing. And the reality is is that it takes quite a bit of work to work up to multi-tabling online. Yeah. Do you do you recommend starting off in the cash games or, you know, playing the sit and goes as I started off in, in the sit and goes online? Um I started playing on the internet in 2008, so this is post-UIGEA, and I think the sit-and-goes were a better pl- uh, were and probably still are a better place to to uh, start a bankroll uh, than cash games, if only because the it doesn't take very long for the cash game competition to be extremely competent because they're either rakeback pros. Or they're you know they're 24 tabling for Supernova and they are awesome, but they decide to play 24 25 no limit. Actually, let's talk about that for a second. Do you think that the programs like Supernova and Supernova Elite actually uh, help players, or does it kind of like give them a place to crash and burn really easily since they try and shoot for these type of benchmarks? It's kind of a double-edged sword. I think it's great for poker stars to offer something where basically their high-level players get a rig back that does not have, it does not compete anywhere close with any of the other major sites that you can play in the United States. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you do, you you probably do lose people that try to go for Supernova or try to go for Supernova Elite, play for two months, get burnt out, or lose everything, and then they just quit. Well, you recently um, had a one of the one of those players on your. Uh podcast Escaliante. He went for uh, Supernova uh, last year on the forums, and I mm-hmm. believe he made it in just barely in the nick of time. I think December 30th was when he actually went Supernova. It, yeah, and, I mean, the thing about Supernova Elite, and I, I, I have no shot this year. I mean, I wasn't really trying for it, but there, I mean, there's no way. But I think the thing is, the reason why I say that is because you really have to start with a plan. Uh, Supernova is not that hard, really. You just have to, I mean, you have to play probably four or five hours a day, maybe eight tables. You'll get there. That's not the difficult task. It's something like Supernova Elite that you literally have to hunker down in your home, not have a social life for most of the year playing God knows how many tables and, and having a solid uh, amount of uh, play ahead of you and just discipline is the biggest thing for that one. So, uh, what's the biggest mistake you've made yourself? Hmm. How many things can I count? Well, see, here's the thing. I won that Deep Stacks live contest, so I'm the worst player on Poker Road, as uh, <laughs> I think people have uh, not really gotten that hint, that, like, inside joke there that, you know, I won the contest and everyone's saying you deserve it. And I'm just like, does that mean that you guys think I'm bad? Crap. Are you really? But, Woo! <laughs> who I won? Oh, crap. Oh. Anyway, but to, to answer your question, I think the biggest mistake I, I made going, uh, when I just started playing, and this is something that ironically Mike Matisau hates with a fiery passion, is playing Ace Rag as if it is the best hand. That you oh, I do that all the time. Yeah, um, and the the problem with that, I mean, I think this comes a lot from the fact where, I mean, even now I get really frustrated when I'm playing a hand like King-Queen and some donk overshoves uh, my my top pair and he shows ace-3 and he hits his ace on the river. Yeah. So I think, like, I, I was that guy that thought the ace was the, the be-all, end-all, 
this card will destroy lives and I will win guaranteed, you know, no way, no how. And I think that was probably my biggest mistake just starting out was playing hands like, you know, ace, ace five offsuit, ace six offsuit, you know, the, the, in the wrong positions, just all that. And it took me a while to uh, realize that, you know, those hands are crap unless, unless in very specific circumstances or in certain or in specific situations in cash games or tournaments, or whatever. Or unless you're so, Phil Ivy. Right. Well, those guys can play five three offsuit for four hundred thousand dollar pots, and the guy that wins is the guy that has six high. So I mean, it that that's a, again that's a level that none of us can really. I can't say they that we'll never achieve it, but you can't expect to win money playing like Durr, uh, in in the stakes that uh, you or I play. That kind of raises an interesting question, actually. If do you think Durr was playing like Durr down at our limits? Because he did start off at I think twenty five fifty cent. Uh, if I remember correctly, he deposited fifty dollars in a full tilt, played five dollars set and goes. And now he plays for hundred thousand dollar pots every day. Yeah. And my answer to that is I doubt it. Um, Durr is one of those players that he can adjust really well to. The competition he's facing and i think if he was playing five dollar sit and goes you know the the optimal strategy in those in those games once you get to maybe 75 150 blinds is shove with two good cards and you're going to get folds more often than not if, if everyone else is following the same strategy well so no, think, and one of the one of the strategies i adopted for those type of games was um if it's checked around to you could probably shove in and get everyone to fold around yeah the thing you have to remember is is that if you're going up against someone who's seen 80% of the pots prior, or he's been calling in uh, the early stages of the ter- tournament, then he'll probably make those calls. And so if he's sitting to your right and he folds, then you can probably make this, this shove effectively. And if he's sitting to your left, then you really do need a bigger, uh, better hand selection than you currently have. Yeah, you do have to be mindful of other opponents. You can't uh, blindly follow any particular strategy. Um, for that reason, you don't know what the if you have got players that will call any hand and you shove with seven three offsuit, uh, you're gonna lose more often than you're gonna win because he's gonna call you down with ten high. Um, but in it, going getting back to Durr, I think, I mean, I don't obviously I didn't see him play up until uh, recently, and I think that probably starting out, he probably played a, I won't say a tighter game, but a, a game that was better suited to beat the players at that limit. And as he got higher into the higher stakes, the people that act like, because people that, at the lower stakes, I will say by and large, are not thinking players. Uh, uh, no I've learned that players. several times. Yeah, I mean, they, they aren't thinking players. You know, they uh, there's It's been said plenty of times, there's three levels of thinking. There's you think about your own cards. You think about their cards, and then you think about what you what you think they think your cards are. So everyone's stuck at level one, at where Durr was starting, mm-hmm. um, and now he's playing like probably beyond that third level I mentioned, or gets into levels of like thinking that just layer on top of each other. So he can play hands like seven high now, because he can uh, he can think that. Well, while I don't ha- while I have garbage, he thinks that I hit you know X hand, and that can actually work in a game full of thinking players. Whereas uh, in stakes that he had just gotten started in, it's it just won't pan out that way. You're just going to get people that are calling stations at those lower limits. And 
What would you say to the people who are trying to learn how to multi-table just starting off the bat? Would you recommend a certain number of tables, or would you just recommend not doing it all together? Um, I'm going to be honest. The You, you should. If you're ever going to have poker as a as an income of any sort, you're going to want a multi-table, whether it's sit-and-goes or cash games. I, I don't recommend tournaments, but that's just me. Um, you want to start... You, you want to start... If you can beat a one-table uh, game reasonably well, then play two. And then if you can beat two, then go to, you know... I won't say go to three, because that kind of gets awkward with the layout, but then you can go to four. And if you can beat four, go to six. Just take this kind of incremental approach to multi-tabling, rather than just going from one to six, or one to eight, or one to four, or whatever. You want to try to space things out, because if you just get shell-shocked with going into... Uh, four tables and you undergo a massive downswing, you're going to think it's it's not going to be clear whether you're losing because of the multi-tabling or you're losing because it's something you missed earlier in your game that you hadn't quite solved going in, and then the multi-tabling just exemplified it that much more. All right. So uh, what do you think is the biggest problem handling most of these multi, multi-tablers just coming off the bat? Uh, so the question is, what's what's the biggest problem you face when you actually ha- are facing a multi-tabler? Yeah. Um, there's two kinds. There, there's the knit, and there's the, there's the you know the knit set miner, and then there's the actual like lag player. The set miner is really easy to face because, and I recommend you do this. If you notice a guy is playing really really tight, whether it's because of your HUD or because um you just notice he hasn't been playing very many hands, look him up. Uh through either find a player or through other means that some people view as tainted and bad. I won't mention them on the air <laughs> just for my own sake. Um, but uh, don't use hand databases. Um, but if you can see that guy's 24 tabling or however many table, if he's playing a lot of cash tables, you can probably more often than not run that guy over. And when he raises you or raises you back, he's not bluffing. He's got the nuts. So those guys are really straightforward to play. The tougher guys, and, the, and those people are generally the people that are playing for, you know, the Supernova or the v, big VIP uh, program on whichever site they're playing. So those those are usually the the Nits and the Supernova players tend to be a, one and the same. Where do you find they sit at? Like, where, where would you find the largest concentration of these type of players, do you think? Um, you know what? I think I, I've, I've seen them as low as 10 ml. Um, I have not played higher than 50 no limit, but I would assume that that and that and uh, 100 NL are probably the largest concentration because that's the spot where you can still make a decent amount of money um, if you play carefully. Mm-hmm. But um, if you lose the money you're going to make off of the bonuses and you know whatever else is going to more than compensate for the for your losses at the table. So I think if you're going to find multi tablers on stars at least. You're probably going to find them between 25 NL and 100 NL. Anything after that, the stakes get a little high and the the, the uh, player base gets a little thinner. That playing at that level is not as likely. All right, as a beginner pro yourself, and well, not as a beginner pro, as a beginner player yourself, and someone who's been through the basics of starting off, what do you think would be the best thing for a person to do who's wanting to really dive into their game and develop it more and get better at it? 
um, those people that say that they are God's gift to poker and they never had to pick a poker book up in their entire life are either lying or they are about to hit a big wall later on in their life. Um, I can say for certain that education is probably going to be your best path toward getting serious and playing. Of course, playing hands and, and learning that way is, is also a big factor. You're never going to be able to uh, do well in poker unless you apply the knowledge that you get in books or training sites. But I cannot stress enough that, you know, read books pertaining to your particular uh, game that you're playing. Uh, if you can't sign up for training uh, a training site because you don't have that much money, there's plenty of forums out there. You've got 2 plus 2, Pocket 5s, uh, Poker Road has uh, hand strategy sections as well. You you really need to uh, learn. You really need to up your poker education while you play. Um, I've had some people say that you know for every five hours that you play poker, you should spend an hour learning the game, and I think that's a, a reasonable ratio to go after. It, was, it might have been four hours, but you know four to five hours of play, you have an hour spent learning the game, and that can be reading a book watching a video, going on forums, uh, reviewing your own hands. It's just that kind of stuff is extremely important if you are trying to uh, get up there in the poker world. Is it, It's a constant learning process. All right. My uh, guest was Spartan from the Poker World Forums. And Spartan, why don't you go ahead and give out your plugs? All right. Um, my uh, poker podcast is called Small Stakes Grinder. It's uh, on Mondays. It, probably, it usually shows up in, around Monday afternoon. Uh, the next two weeks... Uh, the 12th of April and the 19th of April, I'm going to have a two-part interview with Barry Greenstein, so you guys should uh, check that out. Um, just go on iTunes and look up Small Stakes Grinder. It should be the only result they have there. And my uh, updates and uh, other musings will currently be on the Poker Road forums under the member blog section, and that is also called Small Stakes Grinder. All right, Spartan Fox, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. And after this, we'll have another segment with Tyrese doing hand analysis. This is the prologue, and we'll be right back after this.
welcome back, everybody. This is the hand analysis section of our show, and for today we have uh, Tiresias with us, correct? Yes, sir. What's going on? Uh, what's going on with you? Not too much. Ready to do some uh, hands. All right, so I sent you the hands uh, beforehand. <laughs> so let's just get down to it. First hand is the queen eight hand on the button. Uh huh. You want to go through it or should I? Uh, you can go ahead and go through it. Okay. Um, so the hand starts out uh, hero on the button with eight queen offsuit. The queen is diamonds. Um, cutoff raises 15 cents. The cutout, cutoff has about five, five and change dollars, and the hero has him covered. So effective stacks a little north of 100 big blinds. Um, cutoff makes it 15 cents, so it's a 3x raise you know, from early position. It's only four-handed, though. So um, hero chooses to call the 3x with the 8-queen off on the button. Um, I don't know if I personally do that, but I, you know, four-handed, you can kind of get loose with your pre-flop play. I tend not to... Uh, I'm Personally, I play very, very loosely. You know, I'm a very laggy player myself. So, uh, I mean, honestly, you should probably be folding the 8-queen, but I hate, you know, criticizing preflop too much in general, just because, especially forehanded, you can always take control later on. Um, the flop comes 3-5-10 with all diamonds. And uh, the initial raiser, the cutoff, makes bets 10 cents into a 37-cent pot, which is, uh, you know, kind of a small C-bet, really. Um, hero calls, which is actually not too bad, I guess. You're looking for a diamond. You don't have any pairs yet. Um, the turn, you do turn another diamond. The turn comes the two of diamonds. The cutoff checks, which is interesting. And then I was actually going to ask you, what's your logic in uh, checking behind on the turn here? Um, up to this point, I've been playing pretty loose-aggressive. Like, just been basically the calling station on the table and calling everyone's raises, has been uh, re-raising everybody. And it's been working pretty fine, as you could see, you know. i gotten these people to make really bad decisions against me. One guy yeah. dumped on a bluff. Mm. Uh, so. Well, okay. Um, I, so, don't like, I don't like checking behind on the turn um, for the pretty obvious reason, which is that if he, let's say that the river blanks, you know, let's say the river comes the, uh, well, the seven of clubs or something that, you know, is not very likely to help either of you. Then the cutoff, you know, the, the opener has the opportunity to then check. And then you're stuck there sitting with your queen high flush and he's probably got air and you can't get any value out of it. That's the worst. And you know, that's the worst case scenario. That's why you don't want to check on the turn. Um, obviously if you're going to be results oriented, you know, I know what happens at the end of this turn. <laughs> and uh, bet betting the turn would have cost you some... Well, actually, it probably wouldn't have cost you any more money, but it yeah, would have cost... Yeah, I probably would have gotten broke either way. You, you kind of got spewing on the river, but we'll get to that in a minute. But um, the problem... I lost you. Well, you know, calling the flop to try and hit your flush, then you make your flush. There's really no reason to check behind the turn, um, especially because if you bet it, then, you know, you're forcing a lot of different hands. You know, it, let's say he's got a 10 or even just a low pair. You know, he's got a 2, 3, or 5. He probably has to call you there. Um, so you're really gaining value from a lot of weaker hands. And the only things that you're afraid of are the ace or king of diamonds. Um, and if he, re if he raises you on the turn, 
then you you kind of just got to go into check call mode. Um, the river is the interesting street here because you know honestly there's there's no catastrophic mistake, you know, up until here. Preflop is a little bit off. You know, you don't really want to be calling three x on the button with eight queen off, but uh-huh. it, whatever. It's you know you're over a hundred big blinds deep. Stranger things have happened. It's not that bad. Um, the flop, you know, he bets ten cents. You call it. You know, with the diamond draw, whatever, that's reasonable. I might do the same. I probably would do the same thing. I might even raise the uh, draw. But, you know, on the turn when you get there, you do want to, you know, get some value out of your hand. But checking behind's not that bad because the odds of him improving and suddenly, you know, having a hand that beats you on the river is pretty low. You know, the hand value, you either have him beat or he's got the king or the ace. Um, The river is where you screw up. He leads out into a 57-cent pot. So the, the river's the queen of hearts. So to reiterate the board... You know, it's three, three of diamonds, ten of diamonds, five of diamonds, deuce of diamonds, queen of hearts. So it's four diamonds and a queen of hearts rivers. Um, it's a 57 cent pot on the river. Cutoff bets 20 cents. Um, you raise, you make it 70 cents, which is actually fine. Um, you know, seven cents short of a pot. It's 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 actually a decent size too. It's bet you know three and a half size. Three and a half times the size of his lead out on the river. Um, the big, big, big problem is when he makes it a dollar sixty. He three bets you on the river to a dollar sixty. Um, it's not quite. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger than a two times three bet. But then you make the catastrophic mistake, which is you raise all in. Um, he calls and then you know shows you the ace of diamonds. Yeah. This hand overall is, you know, it's something, it is a cooler. There's really not much of, you know, you're going to have to call down. You've got a queen flush, you know. They shouldn't have um, gone as broke though on this hand, right? It definitely, definitely should have lost a lot less. Um, because on the river, he bets the 20 cents. You make it 70 cents, which is reasonable, you know. you He really hasn't, he's played it passively as well. You know, you played it kind of passive on the turn, but so has he really. Although he's... You know, trying to get you to bet out at some point. But um, honestly, I think that the biggest mistake by far is on the river. He bets the 20 cents. You make it 70 cents. He three bets you to $1.60, and then you four bet with just the queen. Because there's nothing that he can possibly call off his last 350 with that isn't beating you. You know, if he calls, he's showing up with the ace of diamonds, like, not, you know, the overwhelming majority of the time. In my opinion, it's a clear call of the three bet. And if he was just being really, really spewy with worse than the queen of diamonds, then whatever. You lost a little value. But the huge majority of the time. Because it's not like you're going to try to turn the queen high flush into a bluff. You know? It's not like uh, your goal here is to bluff him off the king. That's, that's a, you know, ludicrous. So. Uh, Sorry. Your mic. Your mic. Your mic. Can you hear me okay? You're, you're dropping out. I don't know if that's just the uh, connection. Am I good? There you go. Okay. Well, you know, when he three bets you on the river, though, it's really an obvious call. You don't want to just try to jam with the, uh, you know, the third nuts here because he's not going to three bet you there without the ace or the king of diamonds. Um, on top of which, his check on the turn mm-hmm. is kind of like, you know, that's the kind of play that a lot of, you know, beginner players make. They try to, you know, when they hit their big hand, they stop betting as if that'll somehow, you know, make it seem like they are afraid of a diamond. And, you know, it works sometimes. But, uh, you know, you really don't want to, at the end, spew off, you know, your last, 
his last 350 because you had him covered. Uh-huh. Just with the, there's no reason to four bet with just the queen of diamonds. You need to be a lot stronger. You really need the ace. Even the king, I don't four bet shove there. Um, so I guess that's that hand. You know, yeah. He shows you the ace of diamonds. It is a cooler, but you should have lost three dollars and forty three cents left. You know less, which is uh, you know because obviously you have to call his three bet, but to four bet shove is spewing, very spewing. All right, all right. So let's move on to um, hand two, which is the jack six hand on the button. Uh huh. You want to go through this one? Uh, I'll go through it. All right. So it's uh, nine players of no limit. I'm on the button with a uh, four eighty two. Uh, my opponent is the big blind. So it folds around to me. Uh, I call for six on the button with jack six uh, off. Folds around to the big blind, and he checks. Flop comes uh, 10, eight, or 10, 9, 8, rainbow. So I think it's a pretty decent flop for me. You know, I have straight draws. I have flush draws. Oh, sorry, not flush draws. <laughs> yeah. But you got the open-ender. Yeah, I got the open-ender. Uh and um, he bets 10, and I call, and the turn comes uh, 10 of clubs. So the pot's at 32, big blind bets out for 20, and I call for 20 more, which I think I should stop right there. Um, you think you should fold there? Yeah. I would disagree. Um, he's pretty much pricing you in to see the draw. On top of, you really have no reason to think that he's got a 10, because really all he's done so far is pretty standard continuation betting. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you can't get scared every time that a guy bets, you know, two barrels the turn. Um, you know, there's really no reason to give him credit for anything yet. Uh, on the flop, I personally, although, you know, obviously calling, well, first of all, pre-flop, I hate. <laughs> you don't want to, uh, you don't want to open with your mic again. Um, I don't know. It's just the connection, I guess. It'll come in and out. But um, yeah. I wanna, I wanna open Jackson. If you're gonna play it because you know it, you know, folded around to you. At the very least, you wanna open for you know fold equity and you wanna try to steal. Um, otherwise, just fold. But limping there is really you're just letting any hands in. You know. The small blind and the big blind could literally have any hand because you're just letting them see it for free. So you're pretty much in limbo unless you can flop something. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flop, you know, it comes 8, 9, 10. The big blind, and actually the small blind didn't even bother limping for the extra three cents anyway. Uh, but on the flop, the flop comes, you know, it's coordinated 8, 9, 10, but no suits. He bets out 10 cents and you call. Um, I don't mind the call, but I like raising. I'll tell you why. Because in position, if you raise there, if you were to make it, you know, two and a half, three times, if you were to make it 25 or 30 cents, then first of all, if he doesn't have a pair, then he folds. But second of all, more importantly, you're in position. Um, I'm a big, big advocate of raising a lot of flops when you connect or withdraws in position. Um, specifically because it buys you a free turn. You know, if you're to put yourself in his position, you let out, you know, on a pretty coordinated flop for 10 cents. He probably has, you know, ace-x or whatever. Um, and if he gets raised, a lot of the time he's going to give it up there. You don't even have to, you know, worry about making your straight. But uh, more importantly than that, 
you're buying yourself an extra card. Because on the turn, almost no matter what happens, unless it really improves his hand, he's going to check it to you. So then you have the option of checking behind and getting a free river. Or, alternatively, let's say you do make your straight, then you know you could just bet out right then. And you actually gained the extra money that you got in on the flop. So I think that, especially with hands like this, you know, where he could have anything and you flop, you know, the top part, the top half, rather, you know, it's an 8, 9, 10, you've got the jack, not the 7 of the uh, open ender. I definitely, personally, I like raising the flop. I think that's a very good habit to get into. Mm -hmm. um, the call's not, you know, wrong, I guess. <laughs> Obviously, you don't want to fold. But, uh, you know, I, I think the raise is better. Because then you wouldn't have to worry about him betting out on the turn. And then, you know, you, you were considering, you know, folding even just because, you know, it paired the board. And now you're worried, what if he has a 10? Um, I wasn't worried if he had a 10. I was worried if he had a 9 or an 8 at that point. I mean, but you've got so much equity at this point. Because he it's not like he bet a huge amount of the pot either. He bet 20 cents into a 32-cent pot, you know, on the turn. Um, you've got pretty good implied odds, you know, because if he's betting the turn here... The odds are pretty decent. He's got a pair. And, you know, unless it's reasonable to think that he'll probably lead the river or, you know, at the very least, he'll call a bet on the river, you know, if he checks to you and you bet out. Uh -huh. um, so you do call. The call is fine on the turn. You know, in other words, given the fact that you didn't choose to raise the flop, the call on the turn is fine. Yeah. Um, the river comes seven of hearts, which is complete. You know, as, that's the uh, gin card. Yeah. So. The pot is uh, 72 cents there, so now the board is 10, 9, 8, 10, 7, and we've got a jack, you know, to complete the straight. Mm -hmm. um, the big blind checks, and into a 72 cent pot, I don't personally like the size of your bet, <laughs> even though the bet is good. Um, well, you bet out 70 cents. So to defend myself a little bit, uh, that was pretty much a standard bet for me, was just to raise about, you know, just short of what the pot was. Yeah, but you want to call here. Yeah. It's you know you're not looking for a fold. Um, obviously, you know he does fold ultimately because you bet seventy cents, so you don't get to see what he had. But betting that big, you're losing value from an eight or a nine, which is you know what he probably had. Um, you know he's he's got this either an eight or a nine. He at the end he says crap. He's got a ten or a jack, and you know he chucks it because it's not worth it for him to put a seventy cents into a you know a seventy two cent pot. You know, um, he's not going to win that that often. So I personally, you know, I like to maybe a little bit more than half pot or, you know, just anything that doesn't scream that you, you know, it's just too big. It's not worth risking for him. Even if he thinks he's good, he can still fold, you know, because you you, you, know, you priced him out of trying to uh, see if the eight or the nine is good. But, you know, whatever. Um, in principle, the bet there is actually OK. So your act, your line overall isn't too bad. You know, assuming we ignore limping on the button preflop, <laughs> but you know, I think that a better line would be raising the flop. Think yeah. you're open ender on the flop. You know, the actual line itself is not bad beyond preflop. It's just that the size of your value bet is a little bit big. Uh -huh. or maybe because you, know, you really do want to get you know whatever value you can from the eight or the nine. You don't want to you know force a fold out of that. Um, I guess that's that for that hand. Uh, the third hand is you want to go through this uh hand three is uh eight-handed and the battles between uh under the gun who has 619 and me on the button yet again with 452 it seems like i just get into button fights with everybody 
so and you should because you're in position. You should yeah. play a little bit better on the button. Yeah. Uh, so I'm in the button with uh, five fives, pocket fives, all, both of them black. It folds around to under the gun. He calls the five cents. It folds around to me. I raise to 20. Uh, folds around to under the gun. He calls for 15. Fuck. So there's 47 cents in the pot. Flat comes four, queen, nine, rainbow. He checks. I bet 40, and he calls 40. Uh, turn is three of diamonds. It checks around, and river is the ace, and he checks around. And he flips over a pair of nines and uh, wins the hand. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, there's. I think that this is actually this is of the three. This is the hand you played the best. Um, because I do think that there is a way you could have won this. Um, but I think that it's a little bit of a risky play to make. I, this is the kind of thing that I would personally do, but I think that the line you took is actually reasonable. You know, you lost the minimum pretty much. And the reason you lost the minimum is because you took control early. Um, preflop, you know, he limps from, uh, you know, under the gun. The, you choose to raise it to 4x. You know, I'm sure that your standard raise was three, and you you know made it four because he limped. That's totally fine. Um, you know, twofold. So then you know you find yourself one on one. Um, the flop comes, four of diamonds, queen of spades, nine of clubs. So it's you know very uncoordinated board. Uh, he checks to you, and so this is you know the perfect spot where you do get you know the ability to control the pot because you are on the button. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you bet out the 40 cents into a 47 cent pot which is actually, you know, that's pretty good sizing, too. Um, a large majority of the time, you're going to get a fold here. Um, on top of which, he's in limbo, you know. I like the reason that you want to do a lot of, you know, leading yourself and that you want to be, the, you know, in the betting lead is largely because you get to figure out what he has way better than he gets to figure out what you have. Mm-hmm. When he calls, you can almost instantly put him on, you know, either a weak queen or a nine, you know, uh, he probably calls a four too, but you're, you don't really care about the four. You you know, you beat the four. Yeah. The turn comes the three of diamonds. Um, he checks and you decide to check behind, which is actually okay as well, because you know, your bet on the flop bought you that, you know, free turn. Um, yeah. Normally when you, when you sit down into the micro stakes, once they call your bets, you can pretty much put them on one of the two over cards on the board. Yeah. yeah. They're very exactly. rarely ever sitting on third pair. Yeah, I, I completely, you know, I agree with the check behind on the turn, um, largely because his call on the flop indicates he's probably got a nine or a weak queen. Um, you know, maybe not the queen even. The queen he might have uh, led on the flop. He's probably got a nine, you know, and, uh, you know, obvi- it's a little bit easier for me to say that knowing that he did have a nine. But, uh, I, you know, you've got to think about the things that he could have done otherwise because he might have played like an ace four like this. But, you know, realistically, if he flops top pair, um, he'll probably lead the flop, you know, um, and then he's not calling with complete air. So especially, you know, when you were the one who made it 4x pre. So you got to put him on a nine or a queen. The turn comes, you know, it's a blank. You check behind because you figure to be behind, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't also on the turn. Um, if you do bet, you don't have very much fold equity. The odds that he's going to fold a nine or a queen is very low. The river comes. This is the interesting part of the hand. The river comes the ace of spades, um, and he checks to you. In your position on this card, I make a pretty big bluff. I would probably, it's a $1.27 pot. 
I personally probably bet a buck. Um, and he probably folds his nine. Why would you do this? Well, the river ace of spades in position is like, I mean, that's actually just as, it's not, a, you know, obviously Jin would be a five, mm. but this is the next best thing. Um, because you know that he doesn't have an ace. Because after you checked behind on the turn, when he checks out on the river, he has no reason in the world to think that you're going to bet it. Um, so if he did himself have an ace, you know, if he had ace-queen or ace-nine, then he obviously leads out the river because he's not going to check and hope for a bet, you know, on the river with two pair. Um, therefore, the ace is undoubtedly 100,000% it's a scare card to him because he can't have one. Um, therefore, if you bet, you know, like a dollar on the river, which is, you know, most of the pot, it looks like you're trying to get a, it looks like you just hit that ace, you know, like you're the one with the ace nine or the ace queen, or, uh, you know, it doesn't even really matter. You could have ace king, any number of aces, but I think that a lot of people, especially at that point in the hand, even with a weak queen would fold to that river ace because it's such a good scare card to bluff on. Um, and you're not afraid of it at all, specifically because you played the hand in position. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, obviously you check behind, which, you know, it's kind of a weak play, but at the very least, you know, you didn't bet low enough that he's just going to call. The real, the biggest mistake would have been, you know, some kind of small bet, you know, like a value bet bluff kind of a thing, you know, betting 35 cents or, you know, betting like a third or a quarter of the pot where he says, ah, what the hell, I'm going to call with the nine. That's the worst thing, because then you're just giving him more money. Mm. Um, so in my opinion, the best play would have been using the ace to your advantage, because you know that there's no way he can have one. And, you know, betting a pretty big percentage of the pot there, largely getting folds from the nines. And even a weak queen can potentially fold there. And, um, you know, then you get to you know take it down without showdown. Uh, checking it behind is not the worst thing I've ever seen, because, you know, sometimes you're going to see a three or a four. Uh, not a three. Sometimes you're going to see him, you know, show up with a four. You have some small amount of showdown value here, even though you're probably beat by the nine or the queen. Um, you know, the ch it's kind of a weak play, but at the same time, if you really just, you know, put him on a queen, then you don't want to put any more money into the pot. So, you know, this hand is really not so bad. Um, I think that one thing you want to get into the habit of looking at is, you know, when there are those scare cards, you have to try to take advantage of them rather than you know, simply allow your opponents to get away with, you know, a showdown in that spot. Uh, because I feel like, especially a lot of the hands I've seen you post on the forums and, you know, here, uh, I think that you get more scared by the scare cards than you should. You got to use them to your advantage sometimes. The river ace is really, a, you know, it's a great spot for you here in position. And that's, you know, exactly why you want to play a lot of these hands in position, because the river ace lets the pocket fives beat the, the pair of nines, you know, if you do lead out there. So, uh, that's... Yeah, the only thing I was really afraid of right there was, wasn't that he had an ace, I, I, I had pretty much taken that out of his repertoire, it was that he might make a crying call with a nine. Exactly. It's true. Um, you can pretty easily put him on a nine here, but, you know, it is a dollar twenty-seven pot, you know, that's two five cents, so, uh, it's not a small pot, um... It's probably, you know, 25 or so, uh, am I doing that right? Yeah. yeah. 25 or so big blinds. Um, and honestly, I think that it's worth the bluff there because 
you know, he pretty much defined himself and you even, you know, just said it yourself. He defines his hand so clearly because of the way that you played the hand earlier. So on the river, you have the opportunity to take advantage of the fact that, you know, the huge majority of the time he has a nine. You know, uh-huh. you knew it, you know, yourself. You were afraid that, you know, if you check that he would call you down with a nine. But the fact that you know he has a nine is specifically why you should bet, because the river ace scares the crap out of a nine. Put yourself in his position and say, you know, what would I do if I had a nine here and, you know, my opponent bet out a dollar? You'd have to fold. Mm-hmm. You know, um, playing in position and playing the way that you did allowed you to define his hand. He was kind of clueless about you, but you didn't take advantage of that anyway, because on the river ace, you knew he couldn't have an ace. But, you know, nonetheless, you decide, you know, you chose to you know play it safe, I guess. Um I think that that's the type of aggression that you really need to incorporate into your game to advance, you know, to higher stakes. And, uh, you know, don't be too afraid of losing the dollar. All right. My guess was uh, Tiresias. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Sir, that's as good as I do it. And he is a member of the Poker Road Forums and a very good poker player. (laughs) Do you have anything left to plug? No, I'm good. All right, so we'll be right back after this, and thanks for being on the show, Tiresias. Great, thanks for having me. This is the prologue, and we'll be right back after this.
we've come to the end of the first episode. I would like to thank my guest again, Spartan of Spartan Poker and of the Lost Egg Scrinders podcast, which you can find on iTunes, and Tiresias, both of whom are regulars on the Poker Road forums under the same name. So it's Spartan for Spartan and Tiresias for Tiresias. Yeah. Next week, we'll have Limit Specialist Escaliante on to discuss my Limit Poker Hands and the difference between Limit and No Limit Tactics. And of course, updates on my progress and how last week went. The Unicorn Lord blog will be coming back soon with updates and hand histories as well, so look out for that. I'll give you a link to that when I get finished with it. And I hope to have a very special guest on in the next few shows. I'm not dropping any names, but he has three World Series of Poker's bracelets. I hope you enjoyed this broadcast, and I'd really like some constructive criticism. Obviously, I'm not the uh, best guy for this type of thing. I'm barely starting. This is really my first podcast. So, if you have any suggestions or questions that you'd like to send to the show, uh, you can find me on the Poker Road forums on the same name, or you can email me at unicornlord1 at gmail.com. So, it's unicornlord, one word, the number one at gmail.com alright the song I'm going to leave you guys with is by The Heavy and you might have heard the song on several car commercials it's called How Do You Like Me Now so one last thing to do before I go and that is this is the one the only the Unicorn Lord and I'm gone peace <laughs>